You're listening to episode 41 of the National Secular Society podcast presented by Emma Park. 2020 has not been an easy year for anyone and the NSS has been no exception. I'm here today with Stephen Evans, Megan Manson, Alistair Lichten and Chris Loggett to discuss the highs and lows of the year and what the NSS has been able to achieve despite the pandemic and government restrictions. We'll also be looking ahead to the prospects for 2021. Stephen, Megan, Alistair and Chris, hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. Let's start with the most important events of the year from the NSS perspective. Stephen, what about you? Uh, well, obviously, it's been a year where COVID has been ever present in, in one way or another. If not in the foreground, then it's certainly been there in the background and certainly campaigning in a time of coronavirus has had its challenges. But I think we have had plenty of successes, plenty of wins this year, uh, not least in getting blasphemy abolished in Scotland. Uh, well, almost anyway, and uh, successfully amending the hate crime bill to protect free speech. Um, some lobbying uh, for reforms to religious education in Wales has been successful. We've got secularism on the curriculum there too. Uh, well, almost again, um, that will all kind of come to fruition next year, we hope. But I think perhaps the most poignant moment for me this year was back in January before social distancing was even a thing when Lord Tavern introduced his private members bill to end the automatic right of Church of England bishops to sit in the House of Lords. So. This, this was a bill that we drafted with him, so it was a, it was a proud moment for me. But what, what struck me at that time was the reaction to the bill in the Lords. So I got a call from Lord Taverne, I, I think it was the, the night before he introduced the bill, where he called me up and he said, uh, Stephen, they're, they're not going to like it. And, 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 and how right he was. Um, when he stood up and announced the bill in the chamber, it was greeted with a sharp, audible intake of breaths, which was actually comical, and many peers actually laughed at the reaction. Um, the other unusual thing was on, on first reading, a bill is always allowed to proceed. But on this occasion, there were noisy calls of not content for it to proceed, uh, which led to a rather awkward and again, I think somewhat comical moment for the Lord Speaker, who, despite the very loud calls of not content, had to declare that the contents had it, because that's what happens. Peers haven't had the uh, opportunity to scrutinise and consider newly introduced bills and assess their merits or, or otherwise. So naturally, the bill proceeds at this stage. It's a, it's a formality. But clearly on this occasion, the very subject of the bill, uh, we called it the House of Lords Removal of Bishops Bill, the very subject of that bill was enough for people to make their minds up already. And the reason this really stands out for me is I think it was symbolic of just how entrenched religious privilege is in Parliament. Because let's face it, a bill to remove the automatic right of clerics to sit as lawmakers should not be controversial in the 21st century. But the mere suggestion of it was, you know, it was clearly outrageous to many peers. And it, it just got me thinking back to Charles Bradlaugh and Bradlaugh's struggle to enter Parliament and how, because he was an atheist, he wasn't allowed to take the religious oath, which was necessary to take his seat in Parliament. You know, and he faced so much hostility just for daring to challenge the religious orthodoxy of the day. And although society has changed a lot since then, I think secularism has been a big driver of that change. It did make me wonder just how much Parliament had changed. Um, I should say that I think the House of Lords works fairly well as a revising chamber, but it is too much of an old boys club. It reeks of religious privilege. It looks like a church, but it feels like a church, especially when you've got bishops in their robes on the benches and with peers on their knees 
being led in Anglican prayer, which is how each and every sitting in the House of Lords begins. And yeah, the whole episode just reminded me of the, the, the disconnect, I think, that there is between Parliament and the public when it comes to the sort of issues that we work on. And of course, we're reformers, so we are a radical organisation in many ways, but the changes that we want to see, uh, separation of church and state, end to faith schools, end to religious privileges, they are actually not particularly controversial with the public, and they are supported, I think, by the majority of the public. The polling shows that. But for MPs and peers, it's just clearly too hot to handle still. As I say, I think it just shows how entrenched religious privilege is within the establishment and just how much harder our work is because of that. But yes, getting the, uh, the legislation to remove the bishops, it was a nice moment, um, but it was another stark reminder of the entrenched religious privilege um, that we face and, and you know what we're up against. Well, I think, um, especially in the last four years, we've we've certainly seen, I think my sense is that a lot of people across the country are increasingly in favour of, of widespread constitutional reform. So perhaps um, the removal of the bishops will eventually take part of that if there's a moment when it, when it, it comes that we should just reform the whole constitution. Well, the bill's there, um, the proposals, uh, it, it, this sets out how to do it. Um, of course, it may form part of broader reform of the House of Lords, I don't know. But one way or another, we will get rid of bishops in the House of Lords. And I think we should remember that our history, the National Secular Society, came out of a period where there was desire for radical constitutional and social reform. Megan, what about you? What was your highlight of the year? Well, the highlight of the year for me was a wedding proposal. Um, but not that sort of oh, proposal. Exactly. <laughs> it was a, uh, a proposal from the Law Commission on changing wedding laws. We've been saying for quite some time now that um, there is a real problem with wedding laws in this country. It's quite archaic and it's um, been developed in a piecemeal manner in which people of uh, different religions and beliefs are treated differently. So there is a completely different process for how you get married, depending on whether you want an Anglican wedding, a Jewish wedding, a Quaker wedding, a wedding of another religion, or a civil wedding. And because of this, this has led to lots of inequalities. So, for example, uh, Jews and Quakers have a lot more freedom as to where they can marry than everyone else. And it's led to other sort of problems as well. So we've been saying, look, there's a this really is very much causing inequalities based on people's religion or belief. So we really want to try and unify this process. And fortunately, the Law Commission agrees with us. So the, their proposals, which came out um, a couple of months ago, did say they were going to they were looking into unifying and simplifying the process for getting married. So they are proposing to have um, universal uh, civil preliminaries, which will make the first bit of getting married much simpler for everyone. They want to take off um, prohibitions on religious content in civil marriage. I think this is quite a, a big one because lots of people who are not religious or they, um, you know, they're, they're a little bit religious, but not so much. They want a religious wedding, still find meaning in religious poems or hymns or blessings. But at the moment, they are banned from having that in a civil marriage, even though it really has no bearing on the legal process of getting married at all. So the Law Commission has proposed to take off this prohibition, which we support. And ultimately, um, it says that as far as possible, people from all religions and none should be treated the same. Um, so it was a very pleasant surprise, really, to see how in line a lot of this 
these proposals from the Law Commission were. Um, and they did emphasise that we want to put equality, freedom and clarity at the forefront of what we're proposing, um, which we completely agree with. That's completely in line with what we want, really, for a secular democracy. That's how, how much chance is there that that's likely to be um, actually passed into law anytime soon? Well, of course, that's that it, it is still quite speculative at this stage. So they are now consulting on this process. So the uh, the deadline for the consultation is at the beginning of January. So they'll be collecting lots of different opinions from different groups. Um, NSS is certainly going to be submitting a response to this. But yes, it is just advisory. So the Law Commission advises uh, what it thinks the law should do. And then Parliament's got to ultimately decide which of these proposals it agrees with. So we're not quite there yet, but it's certainly a really big step. Um, so that's why it's, for me, when I, when I, when I read these proposals, I think I, it was like Christmas had come early. So yeah, definitely a highlight for me. That's fantastic news. Alistair, what about you? Well, I mean, I was looking at the annual report the other day, and as I didn't have much involvement in it, I think feel I'm I'm in a good position to praise it and and say just you know what a what a great document it is, and and to just look back at how much work we've done this year, particularly in education. Education is always the largest area of our work. It's the one when we you know when people join the NSS and they tell us why they've joined over and over again. We see education is just a, such a huge area. Um, for me, working this year on the No More Faith Schools campaign, I would say the highlight has been hearing so many people's stories in, in so many different ways. Uh, so while we were running the national petition against faith schools, many, many people took that opportunity in the comments to share their own experiences and stories. And some people have, you know, sort of just a moral precept, a, a, you know, a philosophical objection to faith schools. But so many people, it's about the stories of their of how their lives are affected by faith schools and how, you know, just how many ways it impacts on their family life, on their ability just to, to seek a good education for, for their children or to... Uh, in the case of many teachers, how um, how they feel compromised by the imposition of religious ethos on their work. Do you have any particular examples? Yeah, I think one case that probably springs to mind actually this year was um, the family that we, we helped in Wales who had been refused a meaningful alternative to collective worship for their children. So their, their children had been withdrawn from collective worship in a faith school because it was, it was quite proselytizing in nature. And the school had been... Um, quite quite firm in their refusal to offer anything other than just segregation for the children. They wouldn't offer them any sort of meaningful alternative. And we actually were prepared to go to court and, and we, we, we got solicitors involved because we thought they should have a right to a meaningful alternative. And so we were able to help them. Once we got involved, uh, the school has now decided to re review that decision. So hopefully we'll have a better outcome for them. Um, I think that's important that we do remember that for all these religious privileges that we have, there's always someone on the receiving end. There's always a victim. And uh, as Alistair says, it, it, it's, it's, it's always interesting for us to hear those stories brought to life. And one of the ways that I hear people's stories is when I'm, and also Megan plays a big role in this, helping with casework, advising parents, uh, not just parents, often also teachers and students. But when you're speaking to someone on the phone, and, and so often I hear from the person that they've raised a concern with the school and the school have just sort of told them, oh, no one's ever complained about this before. And so often just 
speaking to them and you get the sense that they just hearing from you that you know these issues come up all the time and you know you don't need to be made to feel like you're a problem like you you know you should basically shut up and put up with that that sort of just um almost emotional support often has a big impact on parents and then they feel more confident to go and to speak to the school and to try and find a reasonable solution to these things thanks alistair and from the podcasting angle, I would say that I, there are two podcasts that made a particular impact on me. Um, first was the one with Lloyd Riley and Mick Murray from Dignity and Dying and Dr. Anthony Lempert from the NSS Medical Forum. I think they showed really powerfully how important it is to get the law on assisted dying changed so that it is possible because the current situation is really inhumane. And the second podcast that I particularly found interesting was my conversation with Dr. Sophie Richardson from Human Rights Watch on the difficulties with getting religious freedom in China, which is an atheist state, but being atheist most definitely doesn't mean that you promote free speech. Yes, and actually those two episodes are ones that we got a lot of comments on on social media and people uh, responding when we when we send out the podcast. And it is really helpful to know the topics that people are interested in. And partly there is a real desire for going in depth with expertise. And there's also a real interest in international issues and, compa- and what we can learn about the situation in this country and some of the challenges we face by seeing some of the issues around the world. Yeah, I think that issue as well, particularly assisted dying, is is another example of what I was talking about earlier, this, this disconnect that there is between Parliament and the people. Public opinion is clearly in favour of, if not a change in the law, uh, which, it, it, which it is, but certainly a review of the law of assisted dying. It's something that is absolutely overdue. It needs to happen. Everybody knows it. But again, in Parliament, where we see religious interests so deeply entrenched, it just seems to be they're almost living on a different planet. And Chris, what about you? So, well, my most important uh, event of the year was also one of the most shocking events of the year, certainly from a secularist perspective. Um, and that is the, was the killing of Samuel Paty in France and, uh, and, and, and the subsequent attacks uh, on French secularism that came out of it. So Samuel Paty was uh, a teacher in France. He was just doing his job. Um, and by that, I mean, he, uh, showed a cartoon from Charlie Hebdo magazine um, in a class concerning free expression. Um, as a result, he was subject to a vicious social media campaign. Um, I th- from the reports at the time, I think a father of one of the students took exception and, uh, and then, then there were some other people who got involved as well. Uh, it was a very targeted and personal social media campaign against him. Um, and then he was, uh, he was beheaded, um, killed in grotesque fashion. Um, he'd dedicated his professional life to public service and um, he lost his life in these sort of grotesque circumstances for it. Islamic fundamentalism, of course, is an ongoing threat globally, but what uh, one of the sort of depressing, many depressing things about the story was how many people, particularly leaders in a lot of Muslim-majority countries um, and uh, some in the Western press as well, actually, to be honest, turned the conversation against France very quickly uh, and turned it away from a, a conversation about how to tackle Islamism and Islamist, Islamist fundamentalism and into a conversation about the merits or otherwise of French secularism. Are there any other highlights that any of you would like to mention? Um, well, I think I touched on the hate crime bill in Scotland and it's certainly one of the positives for me has been the, the coordinated defence of free speech 
in, in response to the badly drafted hate crime bill in Scotland. I don't think free speech is very well defended in the UK or anywhere, really. So it's really nice to work alongside other civil society organisations, lawyers, artists, comedians, religious groups, opposition MSPs to get really meaningful changes to the bill that I think will protect both everyone's right to speak freely about religion and, and to disagree robustly uh, as well. But it also just, it was good to defend the important principle of free speech. And I don't think there's enough of that going on. And I think I, was, I, I already touched on the, the reforms in Wales, which are really positive. We've got legislation actually going through the Senate at the moment to replace RE with a new subject of religion, values and ethics with secularism specifically listed as a core concept to be studying. We've lobbied really hard on this. Uh, I met with the minister back in January. Alistair's given evidence to the committee. And going back years, we've been liaising with civil servants um, who, uh, and the people responsible for building this new curriculum. Um, so it's really been nice to see a lot of that work paying off. Yeah, I really want to echo uh, what Stephen said there. I think there's, there's exciting opportunities ahead for curriculum reform in Wales. And maybe also, also going back to what Stephen was saying about the the bishop's bill and the sense of entitlement and inertia in in the English slash UK Parliament. I do find that when you deal with policymakers and politicians in Wales and in Scotland, there's less of that just bone deep deference to the establishment and to religion. And so that means you can overcome more of these issues, it seems. Um, for me, particular highlights, I just want to say that we've been able to support some really high quality research this year that I'm really proud of. Uh, we did our, our research report on academization, some of the challenges that caused. We, uh, we can check the bonus episode I did with Emma about that. Uh, also this week, we've published some research, which isn't our research, but we've supported it for our scholarship program, uh, which is into religious education and how the Church of England uh, and relate and church England affiliated um, producer communities really dominate the uh, way in which Ari is taught and particularly the way in which Christianity is taught in England. We've been able to begin looking at overhauling or exploring secularism resources and that's going to be something we'll be continuing next year. Uh, we've also got you know two pretty major pieces of research which uh, are coming to an end that they're, they're, they're completed and, and they will be being published next year so that will, I think both of those will position the National Secular Society as a really leading voice on many of these issues. What about uh, the biggest difficulties or challenges that you faced this year? Megan, what about you? Well, obviously it's been um, trying to campaign amid COVID-19 and all the lockdowns this has caused. Um, I haven't really been working in the office since March. Um, and certainly at, at the beginning, this was a huge challenge. but think the thing is with challenges is very often they do create um, opportunities to innovate and to do other things that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of doing under different circumstances. Um, so one thing, um, as Alistair was saying, um, when you have this kind of situation, it can be quite conducive to research projects. And so I managed to get a new report out this year, Faith Shaped Holes, which is about the uh, the gaps in equality in the Equality Act, which are there to basically facilitate religious demands, for example, for uh, faith schools to uh, prioritise children who are from particular faith backgrounds. And it was also an opportunity to think of new ideas and um, how different ways of reaching out to people. And one of the ways we 
did that was um, launching a series of online lectures by um, our council member, Bob Forder, who's also our NSS historian. Sort of, I don't know, a descendant, don't know how many generations of um, Robert Forder, who was um, one of the earliest NSS secretaries in the 19th century. That's right. So, yes, it was really good to be able to have these online lectures. Um, obviously, we didn't have quite the, the equipment and things to do a really polished lecture series, but it was nice to be able to do something a bit different and to offer something, particularly in the early days of lockdown, where it was particularly strict and lots of people were stuck at home, to actually be able to give a, an opportunity for people to learn more about secularism in this way. That really was a bit of innovation that came out of the challenges of lockdown. Mm. necessity is the mother of invention exactly <laughs> on on that note i just want to say that the podcast which emma and megan did with lynn featherston about the equality act report which megan led on I, that's in the archive and i really recommend listening to that i think that was just a brilliant episode and gives you a quite a good overview of some of the key issues in that report yeah, definitely. It was wonderful to get um, Baroness Featherstone on there um, because she was obviously uh, one of the architects of the Equality Act. So she knows exactly how it was made. So, yeah, really, really great to uh, get her to take a look at this report and uh, comment on it. Stephen, what have been the biggest challenges for you this year? Um, well, I'd certainly agree with Megan that working remotely has brought its challenges. I think we've risen to those challenges in, in, in numerous ways, but certainly thinking back to late spring, um, the, the beginning of the first lockdown, uh, my wife's a key worker, so she was working flat out. We've got two primary school-aged children, so kind of looking after the NSS and homeschooling at the same time was a challenge, and it's, it's certainly not one I'm keen to repeat. Uh, I'm not a fan of multitasking at the best of times, but this really took it to its extremes. Um, something else that was made more difficult by COVID, I think, was getting attention for the issues that we work on. Uh, we are always looking to get stories into the media to raise awareness and affect change that way through the press. Um, but obviously, that's that's been a really tough year, given how dominant COVID has been in the news. Uh, numerous times we've been told by journalists, it's it's a good story, it's an important issue, but you know, COVID and Brexit are just squeezing everything out. Nevertheless, I think we've had a pretty good hit rate this year. We've had some good coverage in the media, but it, it was certainly something that's been made more difficult. I would say certainly like COVID and before that Brexit and, and, and now concurrent have just taken up the whole bandwidth of policymakers and the media. I mean, just to give you uh, just the strain we see that these things are putting on government and their ability to deal with any any other policy area. I just yesterday got a acknowledgement email from a, a consultation on independent schools, which had been submitted in May, and I don't think any progress has that been made. But maybe we can sort of see if we can see light at the end of the tunnel. There's get, all this bandwidth that can be freed up then all sorts of issues which have been just left on the sidelines might be able to be picked up and looked at and we could see some some exciting changes over the next few years. On that note, though, do you think that the enormous strain on national resources caused by the combination of Brexit and COVID will have an impact on what the NSS is able to achieve um, with the government and local authorities? Well, I think we're still to see what the economic impact of COVID will be. I really don't think it's even begun to start to hit yet. I think we're in for a bit of a shock. One particular thing I'm concerned about is that we'll see government looking to religious groups to play an increasing role in delivering public services and welfare provision. We're certainly starting to see the indications of that already. And I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about that because where religious groups do 
play a role in plugging those gaps and filling those holes um, left by cuts to public services, which we will see. I think we can see increased discrimination and proselytization, and that can really undermine the secular nature and the accessibility as well of public services and undermine the dignity of service users. So that's certainly something we'll be looking out for next year. But yeah, I don't think Brexit is quite done and dusted yet, and I still think that's going to take up quite a bit of bandwidth going forward. Yeah, I, I think I'd agree that the uh, biggest challenge that we, as so many other people and organisations have faced this year, has been uh, the restrictions that have been placed on us by, uh, as a result of the virus. Um, it's, yeah, it's made it harder to make plans for the team. Um, and, and also, yeah, we, we've lost things that we take for granted on a personal level. Of course, we're aware that many people have had it much, uh, yeah, much worse um, for, for all sorts of reasons, but also on a professional level. Um, I'd also echo Stephen's comments about the, the, sort of the difficulties of getting any traction in the media this year. Um, it has obviously, this has obviously been such a, a sort of fundamental shift in the way that everybody lives uh, that, yeah, it has also had that impact on us. Moving on to, I mean, we've talked about the difficulties and, and challenges posed by COVID this year. How have these difficulties changed the way you work? I mean, obviously, remote working is one thing, but is there anything more specific? Alistair, let's start with you. I think it's been an opportunity to take time away from the 24-hour news cycle because the 24-hour news cycle is just the same issue over and over again, and we can focus on some longer-term work. One thing we've noticed, as more people are working from home, we've had more response to emails. So we've actually had more ability to listen to our members. Though we do really need to think about ways that we can harness people's enthusiasm for getting involved in these campaigns into more different and more creative ways. So we can ask people to do more than just writing a letter to their MP. Of course, though, on all our campaigns, writing to MP is really important still. Megan, what about you? Well, I think um, certainly the switch to remote working has certainly changed the way all of us do things. And we've been thinking more in terms of how do we do this without meeting in person? And we have found that we can do this. And in some ways, it's opened up opportunities that we didn't think of before. So with our Bradlaw lecture, for example, that's the first time ever we held our Bradlaw lecture online. And we held it with Jeffrey Robertson QC on uh, disestablishment this year. And because it was online, this actually opened us up, I think, to a new audience. One criticism we do get is that a lot of our work tends to be London-centric because it was always the case that we'd hold things in a, a London venue, very typically Conway Hall, which is where we used to be based. But because we were online for the Bradlaw Lecture, people could tune in from anywhere in the world. Um, so I hope that we did reach out to new audiences there. And we did partner with Conway Hall as well. They looked after the technical side of it and the bookings, and we looked after the content. Um, that's the first time I think we've really done that in this sort of way, doing it online. Um, it worked really well. Again, I think that um, partnering with Conway Hall opened us up to a new audience. And yeah, it was, it was um, a, a big success. It was something very different to what we've done before, but it, it really did work. And that's something we can maybe think of in the future, particularly if we want to um, have lectures with people from overseas, for example. Um, doing some of our lectures online could work really well. It's certainly much easier to um, record podcasts with people in different countries if, if you do it virtually. 
Sure. I mean, we, we had our first virtual AGM this year. We had our first virtual Bradlaugh lecture. Our board meetings have all gone virtual over Zoom. Uh, you know, we've all gone virtual this year and it's been really useful. But I think working this way certainly has its downsides too. And we wouldn't want to work this way forever. But clearly going forward, we're going to have a bit of a mixed economy of in-person events um, and online events too, because as Megan says, it really does open us up to a new global audience possibly that maybe we hadn't quite fully considered previously. So perhaps you're looking um, in the future at, say, hybrid um, events, which are both in person and online simultaneously. I just want to say also in terms of new opportunities for collaboration. So we advertised for an author to work on our education resources. And because we'd committed that that was going to be remote working, we received a much more, a wider variety of applications for that role than we had previously. We received applications from people right across the UK who wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, move to London for four months to work on this project. We received, you know, a very high quality application from someone in Australia. And ultimately, we didn't actually uh, go for them for that role, but we would have been able to find a way through remote working to work collaboratively with them if we had. I don't know if anyone else has noticed this as well, though, but, but, but given that we have been so virtual um, this year, I do fear there's been a bit of a lowering of the tone around public discourse. I'm just noticing more anger around, people being a little bit more vindictive. Um, and I don't know if this is because we're all living our lives much more online and particularly on social media I'm talking about uh, this year. But that's something I've just noticed, which I think is an unpleasant uh, development. And I think we all need to uh, learn to disagree better. And uh, hopefully meeting each other in person again will hopefully just start to kind of walk that battle back a little bit. I mean, they always say that it's much easier to fire off angry emails than it is to actually be angry with someone face to face. So I'm sure that's part of it. Now, let's look forward to 2021, which hopefully, fingers crossed, touch wood, will be a better year. Um, what are you most looking forward to in the coming year? Chris, let's start with you. Um, well, as much as anything, I think I'm just looking forward to what might hopefully be some kind of return uh, to, to some sort of more normal existence. And I think, that's, I think that's, that's true for everybody, both personally and professionally. At the same time, we have got some, some, some interesting stuff uh, coming up. And, um, and before the end of the year, at uh, the end of each year, since I've been at the NSS, we've tended to do a quick a sort of roundup of, of our favourite bits of writing that we've published over the course of the year. So we're now planning to do that uh, and send it out between Christmas and New Year. So if you subscribe to our weekly uh, newsletter, Newsline, you should be getting that um, yeah, between Christmas and New Year. So that's hopefully something that people can look out for. Um, and yeah, I have to say, I just I always find that quite an enjoyable thing to put together, actually, because it's a good way of taking stock of what we've done over the year and, uh, and, and just reminding ourselves of some of the some of the stuff that we that we have said that has managed to make an important point. Alistair, what about you? Um, meeting more members it is something I, I, I have missed this year. On my first day back at work in 2020, which was the first of April, I'd been on uh, paternity leave. I cancelled 13 events uh, and many of those were then rebooked subsequently and I've done talks around the country online around No More Faith Schools this year and next year I hope to do more um, talks for the first part of the year they're going to be online again uh, so hopefully there will be one at your local group but I'm really looking forward to when we can move those talks to an in-person setting and I think just uh, 
the ability to to be getting out there and to talk be talking to people about what they can do not just going and talking to people about the problems with faith schools but actually you know talking and collaborating about actual you know activism and things people can do we've already mentioned also the exploring secularism project and seeing the next generation of those educational resources and seeing more of those in schools is something i'm really looking forward to and uh, the opportunities created around uh, curriculum reform in Wales really open that up. That sounds really interesting and positive. Uh, Megan, what about you? Um, I'm looking forward to getting back into uh, our office. Um, I've missed having in-person contact with all my colleagues. There, there are some advantages to remote working, but there's lots of disadvantages as well. Um, I really miss uh, being able to just talk with my colleagues in the office. We discuss a lot of the work we do. We always work carefully and we we try to discuss and get as many different opinions as possible on what we're going to do. And I think that makes us, that helps us make better decisions. So I am looking forward to that. I am also looking forward to a um, another online event that we have planned. We are currently planning um, an online talk with Ray Argyle, who has written a book um, about George Holyoke, who is another figure in the history of secularism and the NSS. So we, we're not sure exactly when this is going to be. We are hoping early spring. Um, watch this space. Thanks. Um, now, Stephen, you are actually in the NSS offices at the moment. What's it like there? Um, well, it, it's a little bit quiet at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, so for me, certainly getting the team back together in the office with more regularity and just returning some sort of normality in terms of human interaction is something I'm really looking forward to. There's been a lot of talk about COVID-19 spelling the end of the office. But um, for me, I think it's made me more grateful for it. There are certainly benefits to working from home, but I think many of us are starting to see the downsides too. The social aspect that Megan was talking about of working with colleagues, it really shouldn't be underestimated. We do work quite collaboratively. So it's, it's, it, it's just harder to do that if you're not in person with each other. We are largely social animals. And I think the isolation and the loneliness of home working um, is significant too. Uh, it's fine for some people. I mean, I, I consider myself to be a bit of a loner. I'm very happy in my own company, but even I'm starting to think this is all going a bit too far. Uh, so Zoom is great, but it, it's certainly no substitute for face-to-face face -face interaction. And in the long term, I think uh, the inability to disconnect from work can have negative implications on our productivity as well. Some people really appreciate and need that barrier between work and a home life that the office and the commute provides. So working from home is definitely here to stay. But for me, the office will remain the primary place of work and an important meeting space. And for me, it's, it's, it's where the magic happens. And of course, we moved office this year as well during the lockdown. We, we actually moved out of our small, somewhat dingy office in Conway Hall, and we've got a nice new office. So I'm really looking forward to getting everyone back here. And we're also looking to expand the team as well, which is part of the reason why we wanted to move. Uh, we want to bring someone else in uh, next year to focus specifically on our engagement with members and supporters to help us better to communicate the work we do. And if we can bring someone in to help out with the comms work, that will free up time, hopefully, for the other campaigning staff, because we've certainly got a lot of campaigning to do over the next year. As Alice just said, the RE reforms will reach some sort of conclusion, as will the hate crime bill in Scotland, 
And next year, of course, we'll see the final report of the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse too, which is an issue we've been very much engaged in. And so this year, it will be, well, next year, in 2021, it'll be interesting to see what ICSA recommend. We, we've argued for a mandatory reporting law to compel religious institutions to report known or suspected abuse to the relevant secular authorities. So it'll be interesting to see if ICSA go that way. I certainly hope they will. So a lot of things to look forward to in 2021. Um, from my perspective, I also look forward to um, exploring secularism in the podcast, um, not just at home, but also very much internationally. We're going to look at secularism or the lack of it in Russia. We're going to look at Les Cités in France, and we're going to commemorate Charles Bradlaugh, the NSS founder. There will be the um, 130th anniversary of his death um, in 2021. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to see covered in the podcast, please do let us know by emailing podcast at secularism.org.uk or contact us via Twitter. Okay, um, so Stephen, to conclude. Well, clearly, um, as we've discussed, it's been a challenging year for the best of us, um, but we are almost through to the other side now. Thanks to scientists, we have a vaccine. Uh, and of course, that wouldn't have happened if society was still governed by religious dogma. So I think we should be uh, grateful to the Enlightenment, to secularism and rationalism for that. Um, we've seen an incredible response from the scientific community. And let's just hope that that means we start to get our lives back to some sort of normality next year and our civil liberties fully restored uh, in the near future. But I think despite everything this year, we uh, as an organisation, as a team, I think we've certainly been able to make progress. And of course, that's all made possible by our members and supporters who provide the funding and also the moral support that really does make a difference and it enables us to challenge religious privilege. And I think doing that is as important now as it ever has been. So I just want to thank our members and our donors for that. And uh, yeah, let, let's, let's do it all again next year. Great. Um, well, from all of us at the NSS, um, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas and uh, best wishes for 2021. Happy holidays. Have a cool you. Have a good one. And this podcast will be back again in 2021. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society. All rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.